This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the Farm Traveler podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams, and today on the show, we are talking with Tara Johnson and she is kind of a wealth of knowledge. We're going to talk about um, kind of her start in business, which was a company called Tara's Way. And it was organic goat milk whey protein, which is actually kind of cool. And then after that, she transitioned and she started something called the Food Finance Institute and Edible Alpha. And those are really designed at trying to figure out or, or rather showing food and beverage businesses how they can be profitable. I mean, obviously every business wants to make a profit, um, no different in the food and beverage world, but also they've got to figure out how to do it, you know, successfully. And so we'll talk about that and how um, they kind of strive to help them be profitable in food and beverage and value added ag businesses and stuff like that. And how Tara and her team as a part of Food and Finance Institute provide boot camps and training and all that good stuff. And she also has Edible Alpha which is, the description of it is, a source of actionable insights into making money in food. And that includes kind of these boot camps and trainings, and also um, a podcast, which she has, where they talk about things on there, like how to sell your products on Amazon, um, how the pandemic has actually boomed some industries, and dairy grazing, and a bunch of stuff like that. So it was super cool chatting with Tara. Um, our past guest with the Honest Bison, Sean Lenahan, he actually got me in touch with Tara, because he worked with her and she kind of helped Sean and the team over at Honest Bison figure out how to be profitable with a very niche product. So this was a really fun interview with Tara. If you want to see the interview, go over to our YouTube channel, which is just, you know, youtube.com slash the farm traveler, and you'll see our video interview. And, you know, it was actually, so this is uh, episode 101. And for the first time, I did not do the actual intro where, you know, it's like, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast, so-and-so. So Tara and I just really dive into the episode, learning about what she's done, her business, and all that good stuff. So again, this is episode 101. 
Thank you all so much for helping us get to 101 episodes. This is really cool. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, Tara's got a lot of really cool information. I think you'll find it really beneficial if you have a food and beverage company or if you just want to learn how ag businesses work, how food and beverage businesses work, and you just want to see, you know, some good old-fashioned advice on starting a company and making it profitable. All right, I'm going to stop stalling. Time for the episode. mentioned you i interviewed him for his company the honest bison and he was like hey nice. you should interview my friend tara johnson about her her company so uh-huh. super excited to chat with you uh-huh that's awesome so yeah so sean is um well well i'll i'll get to how i met sean so most people know me as the person who founded a brand called tara's way mm-hmm. um it's a whey protein that is pretty much all over the country still, um, natural category product, but it ended up in places I never imagined it would be, right? Just mainstream retail and GNC and all kinds of places. Um, and um, we were the first organic and goat whey protein um, for human consumption. Um, that didn't exist before because um we needed to have a factory where we could um, process the whey and it needed to be able to kept separate, right? And mm-hmm. um, typically whey plants are these huge bolt-ons to giant cheese plants. So they couldn't shut one of those down and run a little bit of organic whey and clean it and then start it up again. So there was no way to do it. So um, I was the crazy person who did that. Um, I had to raise $14 million before I had a single sale um, because I had to build a factory, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, very automated way protein making is very automated. Um, we, um, closed on all that money. Um, the joke at the time was we were the last deal before the first great recession happened. <laughs> so <laughs> 2008, 2009, um, we opened the plant in, um, early 2009, right in the middle of that recession. Um, and had a crazy ride, right? Like because of the recession, it was a very rocky startup, but um, we got traction. We pivoted a lot. Um, We ended up shipping um, bulk product to infant formula companies. And Mm. then we um, launched our brand. We always intended to have one, but we did it much faster because if nobody else was going to take our way and launch a brand with it, we might as well be the ones, right? but I didn't. I hadn't raised enough equity to support that, so I had to raise another million <laughs> in the middle of the recession, which I did. Um, Whole Foods took us nationally, almost um, almost nationally, right out of the gate. So it was pretty unusual. Um, that's why I needed another million dollars. <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine. And um, yeah, no, and and um, fast forward to 2012, we started, the plant was booked for a year, we were totally full, and um, people were approaching us about acquiring us. Um, and we exited um, in a sale to a public company in 2013. So it was incredibly fast. Um, and then I was too young to retire. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, what am I going to do next? And I tell people I don't even like money, but you can't do anything without it. So that's mm, why that's true. I founded the Food Finance Institute so I could help people like Sean. And that's how I met Sean. Um, um, 
And um, we also house uh, an accelerator. So the Food and Beverage Association of Wisconsin's accelerator is housed in our in FFI. And um, that's how I met Sean, because he was in the accelerator. So, yeah. But we work with lots of people. So so brands like, like Sean Lenahan's Honest Bison, um, we also work with farmers um, who are doing value-added things, and we work with food system enterprises so that a lot of those may be nonprofits who are working on food system-related things. Gotcha. So, yeah, all things around money. <laughs> it sounds like it. So going back to the, the Tara's Way thing, um, how did you guys, one, how did you decide on goat milk that you were going to do goat whey? Because I, I've never, I've, I haven't heard of that before. And then, so how did you find um, all the goat farmers to kind of get their milk so you could produce your way? So what was that whole process like? Yeah. So um, great question. Before I did Tara's Way, I was running a cheese company. Mm-hmm. At the time, it's called White Clover. Um, we made 100% of the Gouda, you know, those Gouda hockey pucks? I call them hockey oh, yeah. pucks. Yeah. 100% of them that are domestically made are made by that by a plant that was White Clover's plant. Okay. Because we had this very automated equipment from the Netherlands for doing that. Um, and we had an animal feed operation where we, um, we took whey and made calf starter feed because... Mm. In the United States, that's what we did with whey for the most part um, was animal feed. So that's how I learned the business. Um, When I was running that company, we started making organic cow cheese and we couldn't do any, add any value to the whey, right? So we'd have to just sell it as animal feed. And that's what everybody was doing because there wasn't a plant. So because I had that background, right, I knew... I knew all the cheesemakers in our state because I was one of, you know, running a company that was making cheese. And I also knew the opportunity, right? Like I Mm -hmm. knew all my my fellow goat cheesemakers were in some cases literally land spreading their way, like, and the DNR is getting upset about that, right? Um, You can do that for only a certain amount of time before it becomes an environmental problem. So- I knew that was going on. Um, and then I knew the opportunity was there that, um, that organic, these, these niche ways, if you want to call it that, right. The or, mm-hmm. organic cow and, and goat, they, they, there was a consumer that is going to want those products if they're formulated. Right. So, um, so yeah, that's how I knew. Cause I was already kind of in the industry. It would have been hard it would have been very hard to do that if I hadn't been in the industry because I had to take raw whey from cheese plants, right? So um, I was working, we were taking whey from lots of smaller cheese plants. So it's a very personal thing. You have to know the people who are running the plants, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, raw whey is, uh, is um, 95% water. So you don't want to transport it along. Uh, very far, right? It's you lose a lot of money if you do. So um, that there's a geographical thing too, right? This business has to be in proximate to these smaller mm-hmm. cheese plants. So um, it turns out, really, Wisconsin. There's now another um, smaller, but there's another um, organic uh, 
cow whey plant in California now. But but that's it, like in the world. It's crazy. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah. talking about kind of these value-added products, basically you're taking something like a byproduct away and then you're converting it to something else, which a consumer wants, and then you're that's really what you're making profitable. Like that is that kind of how a value-added operation works? Yeah. So um it's the value added is a phrase that USDA uses in agriculture. They use that phrase, mm-hmm. right? And when they use it in agriculture, what it's yeah, what value added means all kinds of different things to different people, right? But basically, anything that is more than corn beans, you know, conventional agriculture would right, be value yeah. added to the okay. ag world, right? Um, in the in the food processing world, I mean, you could call you could call it upcycling. You could call it mm-hmm. right. There are a lot of ways to describe taking raw whey, which is a byproduct of making cheese, and and then making it into a value added product. And what we did that was not only did we bring these alternative ways to the marketplace, but we formulated and we went to market in a way that was very different. At the time, whey protein was a product for the bodybuilder community in our mm-hmm. country. There was a long curative tradition for whey in Europe because the amino acids are really good for your body, right? And that helps bodybuilders recover um, from, you know, they call it ripping their muscles, right? <laughs> like you rip your muscles, you have whey, you recover faster because of the amino acids. But that's true for anybody, right? If you are recovering from surgery, if you, um, if you just want to eat a healthier diet, right? So we went to market Tara's Way. The brand was designed for the health and wellness market. It was not designed for the bodybuilder market. So it had a very, still does, a very short ingredient deck, um, all pronounceable natural ingredients, <laughs> um, um, and at the time, there that didn't exist in the marketplace. So we we really added value in another way, right? By creating a whole new category for the product at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, that's and awesome. it's funny because now it's that is the dominant category, right? It's you know fast forward what eleven years, um, that's now the category. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It seems like y'all were kind of ahead of the curve then, it seems like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely were. <laughs> yeah. So what were some of the biggest lessons you learned while you were trying to make that company? I mean, just kind of adapting um, to the curtain market or, or what all was there? Well, so I would say that, um, you know, I had an advantage because I had run a company before, right? So Mm -hmm. I had a lot of business experience, but I had never run a startup, which is really different than running a a bigger company, right? Mm. I'd have a management team (laughs) in (laughs) in my company, right? And then you start something and it's just you. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, so so biggest lessons, the the, um, ability to be nimble in the beginning is so important because no matter what i mean yes we got buffeted by the recession and that's a big thing but if it wasn't the recession it would have been something else right like and now with covid everybody's had to do that so yeah 
the world is increasingly variable and resilience is flexibility. Um, and all the, I think it's true for any business now, but it's definitely true for startups. Um, and then the other piece is I learned a ton about money when I did this. And I, as I said, I'm not um, money would, I'm not motivated by money. Actually, I'm motivated by making a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't have made the difference I made without the money, right? Um, um, and, you know, everybody says this, but I'll say it again. Um, it's going to take more money than you think to start your business. Pretty much everybody, when they get going, realizes that. Um, and the sooner you can get your head around how much it's really going to cost, the better. Like, yeah, even if the number's ugly. Yeah. Because I, I find that, you know, what's amazing about that is if you really spend the time to figure it out, you can get the money, which is a really interesting thing. You come as a, you know, um, entrepreneurs have this scarcity mentality about money a lot because you're starting and you're not generating a lot of sales yet. Mm -hmm. And right. You're not like swimming in cash <laughs> by yeah. a long shot. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of like, Oh, but I can't do that or that won't work. And nobody's going to give me that. But, but if you have a good plan and you talk to the right people, they will fund you. Um, so, um, so yeah, I just encourage people to to get realistic. The number's probably ugly. Get a good solid plan together and work with people that help you to raise the money because you probably will be able to. That's a good point. If if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail basically. And I mean, kind of what you were saying earlier, like if you want to make a difference in the world, that's amazing. But if you don't have the finances to do it, it's going to be really difficult. And I'm learning that because we just turned Farm Traveler into an LLC just to kind of see how it would go. And it's been fun okay. learning all the whole business side of it and stuff. And so it's, it's interesting. That's for sure. That's pretty much all I can say as of now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It doesn't matter what, if you're making food or, or doing a podcast show or whatever, whatever it is you're doing, there's, um, there's this process, right. Of, of becoming a real business and trying to get it to the place where, it generates, you know, net income that is positive, right? Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a journey for all entrepreneurs to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So going on with your your new thing, the, the, the Food Finance Institute, which I read the website's really cool. It's all about being profitable in food, beverages, and value-added ag businesses. So um, you kind of talked about that, that, kind of your inspiration, but what are you doing with that now? And kind of what's the response been like from people that are using the the Institute? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I started it, this is a, I'm an, I'm a hopeless entrepreneur. I came <laughs> to the university and then I said, um, you know, I'd really like to start a food finance Institute after I sold the company and they they were like, huh, what's that? You know? And I said, well, um, I'm starting to work doing consulting work. So I started by doing consulting work myself, right? Mm -hmm. Just helping people raise money. And what I realized was there was almost an infinite need for the work I was doing because in food, actually, it's not that hard to get started. I mean, it's hard, but you can use this shared use kitchen, right? For some of these startup-y kind of things. Um, 
um, maybe you're a farmer and you can start a CSA and you don't need to raise a lot of money, something like that, right? But then you get to this place, year one, year two, where you realize you have to bring money in from the outside to grow. Like you mm -hmm. can't do this anymore. And that's where people get stuck. And a lot of, lot of business failures happen in food and ag at that stage. So that's, that's um, why there's just a lot of demand for what we did and, or what I was doing myself. So I decided that instead of cloning myself or, you know, having an <laughs> army of consultants, right. I, I would, I would take some approaches and develop some, um, some approaches. I'll use that, um, educational and sort of things that they're edu they're training, but they blur with consulting. So I've created a boot camp. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a four day process. It's a combination of training and consulting, I have a version of it I do for farms and I have a version I do for food companies. Um, we, as I told you, we house an accelerator. Um, we're, we're launching more and more digital curriculum all the time. So, and I have a podcast myself called um, Edible Alpha. So, um, so we have lots of modalities, right. To work with people. And um, so, yeah, we've, I now have five people on a staff with me and we do all kinds of programming, um, with folks and, um, yeah. And it's so rewarding to work with somebody like Sean who, um, you know, when we started working with him, he, he was already doing pretty well, but he was one of these people who had gotten to a place and he was stuck because he had to get he had to take the business to the next level and get the mm -hmm. money in order to do that, right? And it's continuously difficult for people to do that. It never stops. <laughs> um, and um, but but I've watched him. I think his business is four x what it was when we started. Oh wow! Working with him, yeah. Just in terms of how much it's grown, and um, yeah. And in case for your listeners, if they haven't listened to the to the episode with Sean, um, he does um, 100% online company and he's selling um, grass-fed and finished um, bison. I didn't even, before I met Sean, I didn't even know we put bison in confinement in our country. Like we put them in feedlots. Like I, I'm like, really? There's something like, <laughs> I don't know. There's something like, you know, the image of a home on the range with yeah. the buffalo, right? Just and free somehow, range buffalo, yeah. Yeah, like, isn't that buffalo? Like, how could we put buffalo in a feedlot? Like, mm -hmm. ah. anyway, um, you know, Sean's buffalo, not in a feedlot, right? So, so really great stuff. Um, and elk and venison also. So, yeah. Yeah. And he was early, you know, before COVID, he was building this online brand um, at a time when people were like, huh, I'm going to buy meat online. I don't know if that'll work, you know? Mm -hmm. And then COVID hit and now we're all like, well, shit, yes, I'm getting meat <laughs> delivered to my house because <laughs> I went to the grocery store and there wasn't any, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's so. funny how, I mean, I've seen a lot of people adapt to the whole COVID pandemic, whether that's farmers like selling direct to consumers or even like a Sean and their online businesses are booming because people are staying home and they're grocery shopping from home. So now instead of just buying stuff at their local supermarket, they can buy stuff in a different state or across the country and get it within a couple of days. And so they're learning 
so much more about what's out there and what they can buy. Right. And it's, and that it's possible, right? Like it's possible to have grass fed and finished bison, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I couldn't get that going. I mean, I, I live outside of Madison, Wisconsin, which has, is a very foodie place. And we have one of the biggest hippie co-ops in the world. Willie's <laughs> co-op is here. Right. But they don't, they don't sell grass finished bison there. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you, we, there's so much more, um, available to consumers now that we're willing to buy online. And that, yeah. and now that companies like Sean's exist to, to make that possible too. That's true. That's a good point. So whenever you're giving advice to these companies, whether they're food, beverage, or even just ag businesses, for example, if there's, is there any advice that you would give um, somebody trying to start a food company that you wouldn't give to a beverage company? Like how would that advice kind of differ there per the commodity that they're making? Yeah. Yeah. So beverage, um, so, so beverage depends on beverage, but if you're talking about alcoholic beverage now, um, mm -hmm. that the regulatory landscape around alcohol is really different than food and non-alcohol beverages, you know? So, so because of that, it, that kind of drives so much about what is possible. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We work with We've worked in the past with a brand called Mobcraft, and Mobcraft is um, a microbrewer, a craft brewer, um, and we helped them raise the money to um, build out a thirty thousand. What is that? The, the the unit of measurement is barrels, right? Like mm -hmm. thirty thousand barrel. So a fairly big um, brewery and a tap room in Milwaukee. Um, we were helping them raise the money to do that. What they do that's unique is that they run a contest every month online, the mob. Um, so they open it up and you, um, they run a contest. People submit their favorite wacky beer ideas mm -hmm. and whichever idea gets the most votes they make and they ship to, to the people who submitted. Um, they ship, you know, I don't know. It's usually a pretty big quantity because it's usually a group of people who come up with these ideas. Uh -huh. um, um, so very cool idea. It gave them a national footprint way faster than you would typically see for a craft brewer. Um, but they they are in Wisconsin where you it's illegal to ship beer out of state. Oh, um, okay. All right. So regula regulation is in alcohol. And then every state has different rules about regulatory stuff about shipping beer. Um, some places you can ship, some places you can't. Some, and, and it's often exclusive distribution. Um, so a distributor buys the right to distribute your product from you, mm. which would never happen in food, mm -hmm. right? So Henry, because, because of the whole mob craft contest thing and getting this national platform he made it to shark tank um when he was raising money for his plant um he made it on tv um he, and he turned the money down and i was so proud of him actually because the the they he, they offered the money one of the um judges did and said um I, I'm going to write you this check, but I don't want you to build a brewery. I want you to invest it in your brand. And, and Henry said, well, then you don't really understand our business model because we have to make a different 
beer every month. And to do that with a co-packer just doesn't work. Mm. So we have to have a brewery. So he turned the money down. Um, but then we came back and we used debt financing and he sold distribution rights. And the result of all of that was that we could finance the brewery um, without raising any equity. So he still owns the company, right? You don't have investors involved. Yeah. Yeah, he, he did some crowdfunding too. So he's got actually quite a lot of small investors, but a very different model, right? Mm -hmm. And a, I, a lot of that happened because of the crowdfunding part of it, but also the logistics of it is in that business is really driven by regulatory stuff. Mm -hmm. Food is not, I mean, food is its own food safety regulatory environment, but it's the distribution doesn't have all those obstacles, right? right so yeah. once you leave alcohol, it's, it's much, the whole dynamic of the business is different. Um, Sean's business is an example of one that's complicated because for two reasons, when you kill an animal, you have lots of components mm -hmm. and everybody wants the steaks and nobody wants the roast, right? And you have to sell the whole damn animal, yeah. right? So that makes me difficult. Um, free, he, everything's frozen from him, right? So freezing frozen cold chain distribution like that is another level of complexity for people. So it's interesting about like different parts of food behave really differently, right? Then mm -hmm. supplements are different than, than food. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's interesting about food. I can and imagine. I think, yeah. And it's, I think it's part of the reason why, um, you know, we have been, we've, we have as much work to do as we do is that, um, you know, if you go to like a tech accelerator, they don't really understand all this, right. Um, the people who are running it because, and they're used to companies growing the way a tech company would grow and mm -hmm. food companies don't grow that way. And then they don't really understand how different it's going to be to run a frozen company compared to a regulated brewery thing or right. And, um, so it just works better to work with people who really understand the industry. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so for somebody, I mean, when, when I think about you're starting a business, whether it's a food or beverage business, you've got a couple ways of gaining capital. You can ask for investors or, um, you can crowdfund it. So what are some other ways that people might not know of, um, uh, right at the start where you can raise capital for any business that you're starting, especially like yeah, a food cool. and beverage business? Great. In food and beverage, what people don't realize is that um, you can use debt financing really early hmm. because banks um, lend against collateral, which are assets, right? So in food and beverage, I mean, think about your microbrewery. Think about how much stainless steel there is back there, right? Those are collateralizable assets. Right. Mm -hmm. Which means that a bank would look at that and go, OK, tank is one hundred thousand dollars. If the if the business goes belly up, it's stainless steel. I could sell it for eighty thousand. Mm -hmm. So my I'm protected. My risk is protected. Right. OK. Right? So um, so banks are much, really like food and beverage companies for that reason. And they also need working capital forever. So. They like, they like um, food and beverage companies. Um, 
early stage, um, there are there are government programs that guarantee the notes from the lender. There's mm-hmm. a there's a really great one called an SBA seven A, which guarantees the the lender up to eighty percent of um, on average like eighty percent of whatever they lend to the beginning um, food company. Um, which makes it much more interesting to a bank to lend to a young company. So we do a lot of work with banks in seven A's to help them get um, debt financing into into companies early on. And that that's probably the big one that people don't realize exists. And it's very conventional, right? It's not sexy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like crowdfunding is sexy, but um, but um, but bank financing is practical. And, you know, the cheese company I, I ran was 100 years old. We had debt financing. All, food companies will always use debt, right? You need to have that built, you know, exercise that muscle of learning how to work with the bank. Um, and that's true in farming, too. Got to, yeah, egg lenders are essential um, to farming. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the ways that, um, that we get people financing. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Did not know about that. That's interesting. Are Are there any downsides to crowdfunding? Because I've been following this video game for a while. It's called Star Citizen, and I think it's uh-huh. been it's been crowdfunded for like fifteen years, and they've raised like three hundred fifty million dollars, and it's still not out yet. And people are like, "What's going on?" But they keep raising more and more money. Yeah. So, are there any downsides to crowdfunding like that? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So, um, I. Um, one, I think it's really important to think about the whole trajectory of a company when you're thinking about money. And mm-hmm. I say that in relationship to crowdfunding, because if you use crowdfunding really early on, so say you have 100 investors or, or more than that, it sounds really exciting, right? Except that the next phase you need a private equity fund or somebody to come in or a venture capital fund or somebody to come in next. They don't want to have to deal with a hundred investors, mm-hmm. right? They look at every single one of them as a problem. Mm-hmm. Because Why? Because people call, like if people feel like they own something, they're like, okay, I'm going to call because they don't have I think they should have a coffee flavor, whatever. They don't have one. My wife thinks we should have them. I'm going to call, right? And yeah. if you have a thousand of those people, then you have people calling, right? And you have to produce these quarterly reports and and which generate people calling you. So, so the next phase of money that looks at that and says, oh my God, I don't want to have to deal with all that. So we're not going to invest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... If, but if you want to be kind of like a, a local brand that doesn't really want to have that next level, you know, then crowdfunding could be really great because now you've got a thousand fans who put money into your business and they're going to come to your tap room and or, or they're going to play on the game. Right. Because mm-hmm. they, the, the 350 million came from thousands of people. Um, so so it's kind of building a customer base at the same time. Yeah. And I guess the the other thing I would say is with your scenario, the thing about crowdfunding is you get a lot of noise to deal with, right? Of people calling because they don't right, yeah. the right coffee flavor thing. If you have 
five experienced investors, they would not let you go for 15 years without releasing a product, right? right. Mm -hmm. Like they would have pulled the plug on management a long time ago, which you don't have a mechanism as a investor in crowdfunding. You don't have any, you don't really, usually you don't have any voting rights at all, right? All you can do is make noise and be annoying, the squeaky wheel, but you don't have any any governance rights right okay. that makes sense yeah yeah that's very interesting yeah i've been watching it and they, they'll do these um these projects every now and then where they'll try to crowdfund more and more and it's something like if you um invest like twenty thousand dollars or something you get a ship in the game which is very interesting i can't imagine spending twenty thousand dollars in a game but i understand you're investing in it kind of but eh, i don't know <laughs> it's weird it's weird you know, and I, I don't know. So in, in software and in games, like the whole dynamic of investment, like um, there's sort of paradigms for investing that develop for sectors, right? Like, mm -hmm. so we, I know I'm a biotech investor. I know that if I invest at this stage, I can expect that the following things are going to happen next. And if we hit, you know, if this thing goes great, I'm going to get 100x what I put in. And if it doesn't go great, it's going to be 5x and it's going to take 15 years. Like, because over and over again, that's what investing is right, like in yeah. that category, right? Um, it's not like that in food. <laughs> you know, we have our own pattern, but it's different. And then games would be different, have their own pattern too, right? So I think... Um, um, Crowdfunding is different enough because it doesn't have governance rights associated with it that you don't, the, the same guardrails aren't there to, to make those milestones happen in the way they are if it's more conventionally funded. Um, so good, good news and bad news about it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It seems like it gives kind of leadership of the company a little bit more freedom, but the investors don't really have that much of a of a say so kind of in, in how their investments are managed. So that's totally true. Which could be good or bad, depending yeah. on what management does, right? Mm -hmm. And and yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. And then, you know, whether it's worth you know, I don't know, but I'm not a gaming investor. I don't know. Is it a good deal to put $20,000 mm -hmm. into a game or not? Right. Like maybe that's like, maybe that's a good deal. I don't yeah. know. Right. You have to know the industry, right. In order to know whether the investment is right. Um, and then, and then with this layer of, um, of the crowdfunding and what it does with management and how management is behaving right mm -hmm. yeah i mean usually i i i don't know well amazon is a great example of a company that went public before it ever made any money and people kept investing in it but and people look at those scenarios and say okay well we can do this forever like without it ever making money but that's actually the exception to the rule it's not the rule mm -hmm. right at some point, usually people stop funding the beast and say, you got to deliver. Yeah, that makes sense. At some point, you've got to start getting a return on your investment. And if not, it might be time to pull the plug. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. 
That's yeah. cool. So let's talk about your podcast. You're also a podcaster. You've got the Edible Alpha podcast, and you've got a lot of really cool um, guests and subjects on there. You've talked about like selling things on Amazon, the pandemic boom, dairy cattle grazing, stuff like that. So, and and you mentioned it before, kind of the learning modalities. So, what was the inspiration behind the podcast to kind of reach that niche of people that only listen to podcasts and want to listen to it um, whenever they want to? So, what was the whole inspiration behind that? Yeah. So, um, you know, my joke about this is I, I'm kind of an old person. And so my, I, it was my staff who said you should have a podcast. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, podcast. What, what can I do with a podcast? And then my kids are millennials. So I talked to all my kids who mm -hmm. all, it turned out they all listen to podcasts. And then I, I was like, huh, this is how another generation is learning. Right. And mm -hmm. I want to, um, I want I did this in the university because I want to make the, the knowledge accessible to people. I don't want it to be exclusive for people who can afford it to buy, you know, the fancy consultant, right? So I looked at that and thought, huh, this is a really great way. It's a it's a new delivery modality basically for for I can make it into a delivery modality for education. And so that was the spirit behind Edible Alpha. And then um, we use it that way too. So we, I mean, it, it's a podcast and people listen to it a lot. Like we're, um, I don't know, I haven't looked recently, um, but we're probably at 42,000 cumulative downloads. Wow, somewhere, that's awesome. Somewhere around between 40 and we're, I know we're above 40 as of a couple months ago. So mm -hmm. that means we're probably pushing 45, something like that, um, which is a lot, right? People use this a lot. And I, I um, embedded into, cause I do boot camps and other kinds of experiential stuff. It's embedded in that as, cause I don't have a tech, there's no textbook for what I do. So mm -hmm. the podcasts in a way become a textbook for it. Um, so it's been, it's been awesome. It's, it's really, we get lots of great feedback about the, the, about the podcast. And I kind of break a lot of podcast rules because <laughs> people have told me, well, can't be over a half an hour because people won't listen. And I'm like, well, the kind of stuff that I'm doing, um, needs a little longer than a half an hour. And yeah. so mine are, are usually more like an hour. Um, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but um, that's, it's, yeah, I, I didn't want it to be sound bites. I wanted it to be meaty for people. If they're going to spend the time, I think they want to learn something. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, there you go. There's no right or wrong way to do a podcast. So that's, no, totally. that, that's one thing I've learned it, after, after like three years. Yeah. 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 And it's got to fit for you, right? It's mm -hmm. your podcast, right? And so there, there are people for whom, oh my God, I can't talk to somebody for an hour. Are you kidding me? So then don't talk to people for an hour, right? Like <laughs> it's the beauty of the, of the, um, of the modality is that it, it's so flexible that way. And I think the, you know, audiences pick and choose what they want to listen to based on what fits for them, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love learning about learning modalities because I went to school to be an ag teacher. And, you ah. know, yeah, and you're taught, you know, make sure kids learn how to learn auditorial, visually kinesthetic. And so I feel like a lot of people use podcasts to learn something while they're doing something else, whether it's driving, chores around the house, working out or mowing or something. And so it's a great resource because you can always go back and revisit it. I mean, podcasts are always free. 
most of them. So you can always go back, learn something, take some notes. So I think it's a really good, I don't know, modality that people are slowly, well, they've been kind of focused on it for a while, but I think now because of COVID and everybody quarantining, I think more and more people have been going to podcasts to learn while they're doing something at home. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. And and I think it's also really, you know, it's not an accident that my my millennial kids listen to podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. Because their their brains have have adapted to multitasking mm-hmm. much more than mine is. I, my strength <laughs> is that I'm a I'm a concentrator. Like I can I can work on one thing and tune out forty things around me. You know, yeah. the house could be burning down, and I'm still doing this. Um, um, the, the multitasking thing is not my gift. It was not. Yeah. So for my kids, however, they grew up at, and they kind of missed that. So they, as you said, they're cleaning the house. We're listening to a podcast, right? We're um, walking the dog. We're listening to a podcast. So driving a car. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, it's accessible and it's a different way to get content for folks. So I like that a lot about it. Yeah. And I've heard, I've heard, I've done a lot of research on, on like how to grow podcasts and stuff like that. And apparently the listeners for a podcast are much more conducive to actually like buying something from you or doing something that you recommend. Like, um, I forget what the term is, but, um, basically they're going to be more actionable than people that watch mm-hmm. YouTube videos or people that read articles that you might make or something, for example. So That's they're a li- interesting. Yeah, yeah. So they're a little bit more of a loyal fan base, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. Yeah. That's interesting. And it makes sense to me. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause they, cause once you find a podcast that you like and, and you use it as this, you know, sort of multitasking way to learn things, why wouldn't you keep listening? Right. And you don't have to be in front of a computer. You can be cooking dinner with, you know, with YouTube, you got to like, why do YouTube if you can't look at it? Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It, it, and I, I have, I, and you're right about listening more than once. I have had more, I've had a lot of people tell me that they do that. They'll be like, I, yeah, I listened to that. And I realized that I wanted to listen to it again because mm-hmm. I don't know, something happened and it made it more relevant. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The the first podcast I listened to that I still listen to to this day is Art of Manliness. And it's a website where uh, Brett McKay is the author and the podcast host. And he interviews everybody about like fitness, um, um, organization, productivity, basically anything that can make you be, be a better person. And uh-huh. I'll listen to like, I won't, I'll go months every now and then without listening. And then there'll be this huge yeah. backlog of episodes I've got to go listen to. But then there's mm-hmm. always one that he talks about your relationship with social media. And I go back to that uh-huh. one like every year just to kind of listen to it and pick up on it. And so it's fun because they're always there. And if you don't listen to them for a while, you've got entertainment for hours and hours. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to, I'm trying to remember what is the one my son listens to? It's a, it's, oh, hardcore history. Okay. Yeah. That's, it's a pretty big famous one. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, when, when I, when I told him, Hey, I think we're going to do, I'm going to do a podcast. He's like, well, you should live the one that I listen the most to is hardcore history. You should. And I was like, Holy crap. These were long, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, and it's all about like 
people like Attila the Hun, right? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. This is like, oh my God, <laughs> right? Uh, it's hardcore history, right? Um, but I, I was hooked though when I, when I, listening to that, I was like, I get why people really like this. Yeah, there are some really good podcasts out there. Um, I mean, hardcore history. I listen to a bunch of like sports radio ones where I can't sure. get their stations here. And so, oh, good, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a podcast for for everyone out there. So, right, it's right. fun. Are, are there any podcasts you go to to get for kind of inspiration, or if you're trying to get tips and tricks on how to do it, and you you like kind of steal something that they're doing? You know, I wish I could say. Oh yeah, these are the these are the ones that I that I really listen to a lot because I um yeah, because actually because right now I'm in such a busy phase in my own life that mm-hmm. I am not listening to a lot of podcasts, which is crazy, right? I'm in the business. It's sort of like it's sort of like the plumber who's who's, you know, plumbing leaks and because <laughs> they haven't gotten to the to the leaky plumbing. I feel like that's that's, that's funny. That's part of yeah, that's part of why I do it. Um I also just I like to um I kind of have an infinite stream of people who I want to interview, mm-hmm. which seems just because of the nature of what we do. Right. So, so I'm feeling like, you know what, I, I see this, I really want to talk about this on the podcast. So I get somebody on the podcast. Right. And, and so that I, my ideation doesn't come from listening to somebody else's anything. Mm-hmm. Actually, usually it's from the people that I interact with, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. It's a, it's just a different process. And I think it's because I have this luxury of, of, of working with so many companies. And then because I work on money, I'm also working with the bankers and the investors. And so I have this view that, that is unique, right. Um, that, that I like to use the podcast as a way to share. So that's kind of where I live when I'm looking for ideas about what I'm going to do with a podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a good idea. That's awesome. Well, yeah. edible, edible Alpha Podcast. It's great. I've listened to a couple episodes. I got to listen to some more. So I really like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you get into this? Yeah, so I started the blog, I think in 2017, just to like, because uh-huh. I, I, I was an ag teacher and then I got into software work and I missed being an active part in ag. So I started it. And then nice. uh, about 2019, whenever podcast started booming, my wife was like, hey, you should start a podcast. I was like, all right. So started it, started interviewing people, and uh, we just had our hundredth episode this week. So this will actually nice. be episode one hundred and one. Wow! Um, so yeah, it's it's been fun. It's been a fun experience. Uh, I've interviewed. So the name Farm Traveler came from my favorite show, Booze Traveler, um, oh. on Travel Channel, and so we actually uh-huh. had him on um, about a year oh, ago. Fun. So that was fun. Yeah. yeah, that is fun. So it's cool. That's it's so a fun, fun little hobby. I mean, talk to yeah, interesting yeah. people, learn a thing or two. It's all. It's it's been yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. And are you still doing software? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Still doing software. So still doing software. Jack cool. of all trades, master of none. Uh huh. And do you have a farm? <laughs> no, I don't. We live on about two acres in the city. I want to farm one day. That's the goal. We want to raise that's some goats. Kind of going uh-huh. back to your goat way. So yeah, that's yep. the one day. One day we'll get there. Uh huh. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. What I tell people who want to have a farm is it's a 10-year process to get a farm because it's usually really expensive to buy a farm. Yeah. So you want to plan way ahead of time. 
That's a good idea. Yeah, we need to start planning. We we eventually, because we just bought this house, I think like four or five months ago. But uh-huh. eventually, when we're going to get a place, a little bit of land, have a cow. I just want one or two cows. You and want then one a handful or two cows. Of goats. I I don't, yeah. I don't want a huge herd, just a couple of cows, uh-huh. a couple of goats. Where are you? So we're in the Florida Panhandle, a.k.a. we call oh, it L.A., okay. Lower Alabama. So we're in Panama City. Okay. So, yeah. Awesome. So you do have cattle there. We do. Yeah. Yeah. Florida, yeah. I think, is like 17th or something in the country in terms of cattle production. Yeah. No, um, I think I don't think people think about Florida as yeah. having cattle, right? But you do. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Florida has the largest cattle ranch. It's it's the Deseret Ranch, the Mormon Ranch they have here. Oh, two in yeah. Florida, one in South Florida, one here in North Florida. And so they're multi thousand acre ranches so yeah so yeah yeah isn't that crazy the other thing about ag in florida that i didn't realize is seed companies will do trials in florida to in so so if you're doing um you know producing seed in the old-fashioned way so you're actually breeding right Mm -hmm. um you, you get two seasons if you do one in Florida and you do one in, say, Wisconsin. So I had no idea. So they grow corn in Florida, the seed companies do, so they can get a double season of, you know, hybridization, whatever they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. fun. I didn't know either. either. Yeah, our, our lack of winter, um, or maybe our, I think our winter is here. It was like a month. It's super cold and it's hot the rest of the year. I mean, that's Florida right, for you. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and everybody prays that the corn makes it through the cold. But yeah, it, I had I had no idea that was true about agriculture in Florida. Well, that's fun, fun fact. That's not bad. Yeah, I yeah. don't know if you can hear the thunder. It's currently we've got our summer uh, showers going on. It's uh, storming like crazy. Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah. We just we needed some of that rain up here. We got some, but oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. It's been crazy, crazy weather. It's yeah. I, being a farmer right now, given the variability of everything is really, I mean, it's always been this way, but it's just like getting to be on steroids. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like we'll go um, months and months without rain and then it'll rain for like three weeks straight. And you're like, so it was a drought. Now it's a flood and back to a drought, back to a flood. Right. So it's crazy. Right. The variability. And mm-hmm. that, yeah, I talk a lot about that with our clients too, about how do you how do you design a business model for your farm that is resilient for that? Right. Like, like, yeah. Um, And what that looks like is different for every farm, but I, you know, that kind of, there's always been variability, but the extreme variability is, is getting everybody's attention now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I interviewed a lady in Texas. She farms right at the Texas Mexico border and, you wow. know, in Texas, they had that huge uh, winter storm. And so their crops yeah. were just completely wiped out. And she was like, we've never uh, experienced something like this. So, yeah. I mean, sometimes you just can't plan for what's going to happen. So it's yeah. crazy. You never know. Yeah, no, but you have, to, but now we have to, right? Like oh, it yeah. was in, I was, I had the, um, this often doesn't happen because we, we tend to work with people who are already in business, but I had. I was involved in with somebody who was being very planful and this was pre having their farm. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do with our farm kind of planning? Um, And his wife is somebody I know pretty well who knows how to do um, marketing um, to a grocery stores, right? Mm -hmm. Knows Mm -hmm. how to knows how to do that, which is a thing in and of itself. She knows how to do it. So she really wanted to be a local farm, right? And sell everything they grew locally and grow locally and sell it locally, which a lot of people want to do. Mm-hmm. And this was 
Oh God, uh, seven, six, seven years ago. And I was in their planning meeting with a bunch of people. And I said, you know, with climate change and climate variability, it's really risky what you are just describing because mm. you're building out, they, they sell herbs in clamshells. Okay. You, you get shelf space. They put your brand in there and then you don't have any product in the winter. So they take it out. Well, whose brand is going to go in? Somebody else is going to go in. And then are they going to bring you back? Mm-hmm. Right? Like you never want to give up shelf space when you have it. Yeah. It's kind of one thing. And then what happens if we have a drought? You will have no sales of anything. Right? Is this re- so? So they, t- we talked and, and they, um, came up with this strategy of working with a really values aligned farm that actually is in a temperate place, not a temperate warm place. So, so they have crop availability all winter mm-hmm. and completely different climate zone. Right. So it's not all at risk. Um, your whole business as a farmer isn't at risk mm-hmm. um, because of variability. And that ended up helping him, um, in a number of situations already really already like we weren't we weren't even we were sort of thinking that this is like the 20 year 40 year strategy right to have this farm for your kids and it's already helping Mm -hmm. so it's an interesting thing for us all to be thinking about right oh absolutely yeah that's interesting yeah and, you know, how do you handle water on your farm right around here? We're supposed, our climate change in the upper Midwest is going to be too much water, not too mm. little water. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about how we're going to handle water, because um, there are things that you can do to, to ha- better handle water on your site, make sure it infiltrates better, right? Um, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff um, that, yeah, you know, five years ago, nobody wanted to talk about that. Even two years ago, I think people started talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, um, yeah, that stuff is coming. It's getting there. It's crazy. Yeah, It's it been is. fun. I mean, it is. It, it, it's funny watching everybody kind of adapt to it differently. Because I mean, farms here in Florida are doing stuff differently to fight climate change, just like uh, places in Wisconsin, California. Yeah. So it just kind of varies. Yeah. Yeah. Depends where you, of course, like, and what, what climate change is going to mean for different regions is so different. I, I, I would imagine you're going to have more heat and more rain actually. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what they're saying. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, yeah. It, it won't be, I mean, it'll be annoying here in Florida, but our, our sand is so, or our, our soil is so sandy. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's, it'll be an issue, but we'll figure it out. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of the farms here grow, um, like with strawberries or oranges, for example, they grow them like in high, not high tunnels, but in beds where they're already irrigated. So it's not like they depend much oh, sure. on the rainfall. So, but we'll see mm-hmm. how that goes. Mm-hmm. We will see. Yeah. You know, the citrus thing, I, um, there's the, the, it's, is it a virus? Have you talked to people about this? Yeah. It, I think it's a blight or something. It's, it, it's, it's a blight. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's some sort of virus or something. Um, it's really catastrophic. Mm-hmm. It's having catastrophic impacts in California. I don't know about Florida. Yeah. It's hit a lot of farms here in Florida too. I think mainly in California and Florida. I, I don't know mm-hmm. the number, but I think it originated from China, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, th- there, 
I think I'll, I just did a report on it a few um, weeks ago. Some or some university in Australia, I think they, I think they've come up with a variety that is resistant to the blight. And so oh, I think they're good. doing trials here in the U S yeah. to see if it works in California and Florida. So we'll yeah. see, but yeah, we hope well, it doesn't wipe it out. That's the first good news I've heard oh, about really? that. I had no idea, right? I worked with, I was doing a boot camp in California and somebody came who was a citrus grower and it was like, yeah, we need to do something else with our farm. Cause I don't know if citrus is going to even work in five years. I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotten bad. I mean, I, I don't know the numbers, but I mean, I, I've seen a lot of it's reports, bad. a lot of articles where they're talking about yeah. the blight and, and stuff like this has happened before. I think 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was a similar blight that kind of came through and almost wiped mm. out all of central Florida citrus. Wow. Yeah. Then the other weird thing I heard was that the trees, um, they were inoculating with, um, I think it antibiotics. Mm. Hmm. Which is weird. Like it might, maybe it's a bacterial thing that is behind the blight. And anyway, um, at a time when we have, we have problems with antibiotic resistance anyway, they were inoculating with huge amounts of antibiotics. Yeah. So um, that's interesting. I haven't heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was like, that does not sound good. Yeah. To me. Antibiotics to trees. That's a whole other issue. I feel like. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, doing a podcast like you do, you have infinite things to talk about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's never well, a shortage gonna, of topics. I'm going to start listening to you. Yeah, please I, do I it. To, I would like, appreciate I'm it. Gonna, yeah. I'm going to be the, find a way to be a multitasker and start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, well, there you go. Yeah. yeah, we've interviewed people all over the U.S., Canada, Saudi Arabia, Australia, and nice. no, I've learned no two farms are the same. So that's been fun. I, I interviewed one um, company. They're a dairy farm in the UK. This is kind of a cool value added a little bit of value transition. Yeah. So they have a milk vending machine on site. So instead of sending that milk off, they just have it in uh-huh. tanks and people in their community come up and they buy the milk. Like, oh, just in the milk vending cool. machine. So yeah, they're called Vine Farm Dairy. And so it's that Vine was that was one of our dairy. earlier episodes. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is a great idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, how do you, yeah, I don't know. Dairy is a whole, we could have a whole, oh, we could do a whole yeah. episode on dairy. Yeah, dairy is a whole other happening. industry, it feels like. Well, and it's one that's near and dear to my heart, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I've been in the dairy industry for a long time, and it's really sad to see what is going on, mm-hmm. actually, at the farm level. Yeah, it's, a lot of farms going under, going bankrupt. Farms yeah. going bankrupt, farm you know covid farms dumping milk farms losing their milk rat and just closing because mm-hmm. the processors don't want their milk anymore and there isn't anybody else and there's it's like the whole industry needs a remake yeah it's just yeah and in the meantime you know what is it that's driving consumers to these other milks we have to be more innovative in the industry than we are mm-hmm. right i just saw some data that was Something like the per capita, I was looking at it, it was like from 19, the 80s till 2019, per capita consumption of fluid milk has gone down almost 40%. Oh, wow. I believe that. I mean, we, yeah. we've got all these alternative forms of milk that people are going to and just trying. So I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Cheese has gone up, though, quite a bit. Really? Cheese consumption has gone up um, quite a bit. And it's still less than Europeans eat per huh. capita. Huh. So, okay. you know, there's there's actually some hope in there. In there. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. But there's, there's, yeah, there's what's going on with dairy is not fun. So mm. I love the vending machine idea. That's awesome. Yeah. The vending machine was cool. I'd be excited to see someone here in the U S try that. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Tara, this has been super fun chatting with you about the food Institute, edible alpha, your podcast, all things. Uh, so if people want to find out more about food finance and edible alpha, where can they go to find all that good content? Awesome. So just, just go to our website, foodfinanceinstitute.org. And um, when you go to that website, it'll take you to Edible Alpha. You can go to Edible Alpha directly as well. It's at ediblealpha.org is its own website too. So either way works. Well, sweet. Well, Tara, thanks again. This has been a pleasure. We'll have, we've talked about so much. We'll have to have you on sometime in the future. I know. We'll, we'll continue this conversation. Yeah. We have a and, lot to talk about. Yeah. And maybe we can talk about dairy or something. That'd be awesome. Yeah. 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 I'd like that. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, good. well thank, thank you. you. Well, this yep. will go live uh, next week. So oh, nice. next okay. Wednesday. So I'll, I'll email you before that goes out. If you, I can either email you or Sarah, if y'all could just email me like a headshot or something. Awesome. I'll have Sarah get you a headshot. Okay. Perfect. All right. All right. Well, thanks again, Tara. Right, I appreciate great. it. Have a good one. Yeah. You too. Take care. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.